0: Open our Bibles tonight, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 2. This evening we're in the third part of the message that I've been uh, preaching for a couple of weeks. I've sinned, now what? And that uh, title might be a little bit confusing to you if you haven't been here for the other two messages. But we're primarily talking here about Christians. That's the group of people that John is writing to. They were Christians that were confused by others who said they were Christians and they were still living in sin. And in some cases, they were even encouraging it. And so in chapter 1, John gave strong inducements not to sin. He says in First John, uh, John 1, verses 5 and 6, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. That is a very strong statement. And if John had stopped there, every one of us as Christians would be in very deep trouble. Because that statement alone would say that Christians have to be perfect. And if we sin, then we would never be able to walk with God. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he goes on and he admits that Christians do sin... In verse number 8, he teaches that the sin nature is not eradicated when you become born again. And in verse number 10, he teaches that sin is an inherent problem. Sin started when we were born. It's part of the nature that we're born with. It was given to us from our first father, Adam. And as long as we live, that sin nature will be with us. Well, it seems then that we're in an unsolvable dilemma. We know that we're still sinners. God can't fellowship with sin. We can't get rid of our sin nature. So how are we going to fellowship with God? Well, those questions are answered in 1 John. But the only problem is they don't always come in the order that you'd like to see them. And so if you read the first chapter without having read the rest of it or read certain parts without reading at all, then you may not understand what John is speaking of. And so you have to take the whole book of 1 John in context or you'll be confused. But sin is a very serious issue, and that's pointed out in verses 5 through 10 of that first chapter. Sin is the most prominent word in those few verses. Well, John has admitted that Christians do sin, and he wants to make sure that once he said that, we don't just cavalierly take that as something we can live in and do anytime that we want. Because that was exactly the wrong attitude of the Gnostics, the people that he was trying to speak against. They claimed they could live in sin and still have fellowship with God, which was the point of verse number 6 that we just read. And then there are those other errors that were being taught. Some said we're saved, and so therefore we don't sin. And then some said we never have sin in the first place. And again, that's addressed in verses 8 and 10. So we come to the second chapter... And in keeping with this thought that there is admission that we still sin after becoming Christians, John makes this statement. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. It is possible to sin. We know that. It's best that we don't sin because sin interferes with fellowship. So if we do sin, then what happens? How does God deal with the sin of a Christian? Well, we started out a couple of weeks ago with the first phrase of verse number one, which begins, My little children. And in that we see the care of the apostle. That shows the tender side of John as he very gently leads these people in the right direction. Now, John was much like or was like the other apostles. He could be very angry at false teaching and very strongly opposes it. But he's speaking to Christians here. And so he's not going to condemn Christians. He corrects them gently with the truth. Well, a Christian can be, a le- can be led away by false teaching and that Christian who is led away is an erring brother who needs to be restored in a spirit of love. And so John doesn't lash out in anger. He doesn't say, well you dummies, why would you ever follow such a stupid doctrine? I might say that, but not John. Well then we moved on to the a second part of the first sentence. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. And that is the charge of the apostle. Don't sin. That's the essence of that first sentence. And I gave you four reasons why we shouldn't sin. There are many reasons, but I gave you four ones that you need to remember. Don't sin because of your conscience. Don't sin because of commandments. Don't sin because of the consequences of sin. And don't sin because you have been consecrated to God. So now we're in the second part of the verse. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we've titled this part, this third part of it, The Consolation of the Advocate. I've sinned, so what happens now? Well, the best news that you'll ever hear as a Christian is that God does not forsake you when you sin. In chapter 1, verse number 9, we're told to confess our sins and then God will forgive us. But the forgiveness of sin is not a capricious act with God. God is a God of justice and that word advocate is... And First John two verse one brings that out. An advocate is one who's called alongside to help. That's the word parakletos. Uh, actually, we saw a form of that word in the song we just sang a few minutes ago. Holy Spirit was called the Paraclete, the one who intercedes for us, who prays. And this word has the same meaning. It's one who pleads the cause of another. And so, what we're actually talking here about is a defender. And in our common t- common terminology, we would call that a lawyer. Uh, Jesus Christ is our lawyer. He is our attorney who pleads our cause before the judge. So if you could imagine it this way, it's like a courtroom scene. Uh, We're accused of sin. We've broken God's law. But God doesn't just wave his hand and say, well, that doesn't matter. Now that you're a Christian, I can just let that go. God never does that. Forgiveness of sin can only be based upon one thing, and that is the satisfaction to the penalty of the law. And so our lawyer is there to proclaim that our sins can be forgiven because they've been paid for. They've been paid for by the shedding of his blood. And so our advocate is Jesus Christ, and he continually presents his blood as the reason, for sati- or the reason that we can be forgiven. That's the satisfaction that God requires. Now, we're not going to explore this further right now, but the arrangement... For the acceptance of Christ's blood as the means of forgiveness was given or done before the foundation of the world. And it exists in that eternal covenant that was made between the Father and the Son. And so, as I think I mentioned uh, one time here not long ago, that salvation is not a contract between you and God. Salvation is a contract between God the Father and Christ the Son. And that took place before the foundation of the world. And so God agreed that he would accept Christ's payment as the ransom price for sin. And so our redemption has been guaranteed by Christ before the world ever began. And according to the scriptures, those persons who have been purchased with the blood of Christ have always been known to God. I mean, how could that be otherwise? Jesus says in John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so when we sin, we have Christ in the courtroom pleading his own blood for our forgiveness. And that is an ongoing, continuous act. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from sin. So I began this part of the message last week speaking of the work of Christ. And I felt like this work of Christ's advocacy was so important that we spent all of our time dealing with that first point. And if you didn't hear that or you've forgotten about it, go back and review it. Because it has... A connection back with the tabernacle and the work of the high priest who is continually busy in that tabernacle making intercession for the people. Remember last week we talked about the bells that were around the hem of the priest's garment. And those bells had to always constantly ring because the priest was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is always busy with the work of intercession. According to Hebrews, he ever lives to make intercession... And so Satan is always accusing us, so Christ has to always be defending us. And so those bells on the robe of the high priest were always ringing to show that. It's a picture. Christ is always defending his people against the accusations of Satan. Well, thinking back to this problem of sin, we see that sin is not easily dismissed. The sin question actually looms in the background of everything that Christ does. That the work of Christ is always concerned with this problem that we have with sin. And Christ came to settle the sin question forever. So he's not going to let this go. The work of Christ is significant. And Christ's work is always significant. You know, a few weeks ago I was speaking to someone who was complaining that I preach too much about sin. And uh, I told you it's hard to please everybody. Some people say, well, you don't preach enough about sin. And others say you preach too much about sin. Well, this person had a really good reason why I shouldn't preach about sin. And that was because it was getting too uncomfortable in the pew. And it just so happened that I was preaching on the sin that they were committing. And they didn't like it. So I can only think that when a person says something like that, how insignificant... That they think sin is and how insignificant the work of Christ must be. But Christ is continually busy, always dealing with God's justice and God's wrath because of sin. He doesn't rest day or night dealing with it. But to this person, it meant practically nothing. The advocacy of advocacy of Christ is not a trivial matter. So it's hard to imagine that there would be a Christian who who... Uh, disregards Christ's work for sin, you couldn't really think that person could be a Christian. Friends, if sin does not break you down, if you don't mourn because of sin and what sin did to Christ, and if you are not continually throughout your life trying to rid yourself of sin, then you haven't been truly born of the the Spirit of God. Well, I need to move on, but I do want to add a, a postscript to that point of Christ's work. Because Christ is always working We need to thank God that salvation is eternal. Salvation, the intercession of Christ, makes our salvation eternal. Because Christ is always on the job, we can never lose it. Uh, Jude said, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. No, there is abundant proof throughout the Scriptures that salvation is eternal. There is an eternal covenant that exists between the Father and the Son. And the very foundational principle of why we have assurance is that eternal covenant. Now, mo- there are many people that don't get that point, and so thus they, they lose the greatest grounds of assurance that we have, that God has chosen us. But if you miss that one, I mean, if you miss that truth, for some reason you don't understand it, you can't see it, then settle down into this truth, that your salvation is eternal because Christ lives, he works, he advocates without ceasing. And so if you lose your salvation, that means that Christ lost the case in God's courtroom. Now, there are people who say that salvation can be lost, and they're doing one of two things. Either they are accusing of Christ quitting his job, or... They're saying that Satan has outmaneuvered him in God's courtroom. Now, you can pick your poison on that one because both of them are blasphemous to God. So let's move on. We have an advocate with the Father. Uh, We have this work of Christ that is our consolation. And now next we have the worthiness of Christ. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ Christ. The righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. The little nuances of Scripture can be intriguing, I think. When John speaks of righteousness here, is he speaking of the righteous satisfaction that Christ made to the law? You know, the Apostle Paul often speaks of Christ's righteousness that way. In fact, when he wrote the book of Romans, it's almost like reading a legal brief on how that the law is satisfied by the work of Christ. And so Paul says in Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And that comes in the middle of a discourse where Paul is uh, talking about Israel that sought to be justified by her works. And so the people claimed that they were righteous and they thought they had kept the law, but their righteousness was not good enough. The law condemns because the law requires absolute perfection. And since these people weren't perfect, they needed another type of righteousness. They need something better than they had. Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 when he said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's talking about. You have to have a better righteousness. And Paul's argument is that the life of Christ is our righteousness and that's the only righteousness that God will accept. That righteousness has to be imputed to us through faith for salvation. And that's why we call Christ righteousness an alien righteousness. And what that means is it doesn't arise from within us. There is no righteousness of our own that's inherent in our nature that we could ever be justified by. So it takes a righteousness from outside of us and that's the righteousness of Christ that's given to us. And it comes from someone who kept every law of God flawlessly. And so when Paul is speaking of Christ's righteousness, he's thinking more in terms of this imputation of righteousness to the sinner. But in our text, John is not speaking of righteousness in the same way. Now, for a moment, for just a moment here, John is not thinking of imputation, but rather he's thinking about the righteous character of Christ himself. Our advocate, Jesus Christ, is righteous in his character. Now, you can imagine it this way. Let's suppose that you're in God's courtroom and you've been accused of this long list of crimes. Now on that list are the myriads of ways that you've broken God's laws. And so your attorney gets up and he stands to speak before the holy, righteous, perfect judge. But it turns out that your attorney was your cellmate in prison. He has skulls tattooed all over his arms, and he has daggers for earrings hanging from his ears. He's got piercings all over his body. He's got long, stringy hair that hadn't been washed for weeks. He's got a list of, of, on his rap sheet that goes all the way out the door. He's got a shiv hanging out of his pocket. And he stands up and he says, Your Honor, I want to tell you why my client should go free. And about that moment, your head is hanging down, and you're thinking, I'm going to fry as sure as the world. That's how important John's statement is. Because if there is anyone but Jesus defending you, you're on the fast track to the hottest part of hell. But not when Jesus is the attorney. And that's because the judge knows him. He has rapport with the judge. This one who's standing before him from the top of his head to the sole of his feet, he is absolute perfection. He's believable. Every word that he says is believable. And as the words pass through his mouth and through his lips, they fall off his tongue with sweetness. He knows every detail of God's law. He knows the grand summation of the law. Love God with all of your heart. And also love your neighbor as yourself. And he knows every statute that supports that point. The judge loves holiness. And standing before him is a lawyer who is full of grace and truth. And one who is as holy as he is holy. And then further than that, this is the one who has been approved by God. And so when he presents the case, God doesn't have to check the fine print to to see if he's pulling a lawyer's trick. He's trustworthy. And so he comes into the courtroom having won every trial. His credentials are impeccable. His skills are unmatched. And with all the millions of people that he's ever represented, not one of them left God's courtroom without a pardon. Now do you see that? If any man sinned, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now let me go further than that. He also has the Father's ear. You put your confidence in one who never leaves the courtroom and God is never tired of hearing his pleadings. He loves the sound of his voice. As the hymn writer said, He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing. So when Jesus says, Father, this is one of mine. I gave my life for him, and you promised that everyone that you gave me would go free if I would lay down my life for theirs. And Father, this is one that I gave my life for, and so according to your holy and righteous law and your justice, the penalty says he must go free because it's been paid. Now you stop there for just a moment. Doesn't that sort of put the atonement of Christ in a different light? Is there one for whom Jesus gave his life that the Father would ever refuse to forgive? And so does God say, well, I hear what you're saying. You gave your life for this person, but I'm waiting to see if he had the good sense to believe it. No. Christ has already taken care of that. The Holy Spirit draws all for whom Christ died. They will believe, and he only draws the ones that are given to him. And they were given before the foundation of the world. Otherwise, if that isn't true, then you have God rejecting the atonement. God's not going to reject the atonement. He's the one who made the covenant with the Son, and that infallibly secured the salvation for those whom he died. Now, there's amazing truths that you can draw, the, draw out of the Scripture when you just leave salvation all in the hands of God rather than putting part of it in the hands of man. Well, this is wonderful. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is thoroughly holy as God is holy. He, he stands in God's courtroom, so holiness stands before holiness. And so, what will the outcome be? What, who, what is God going to refuse? He's your advocate when you sin. Now, thirdly, there's consolation in Christ when we sin. Why? Because of the weakness of our flesh. Now, you might want to take a note or two on this because you don't want to leave that statement just as it is. Because if you look back over this outline, uh, that won't make sense. We have consolation in Christ because our advocate understands the weakness of our flesh. Now, it's not that he's weak in the flesh, but he understands the weakness of our flesh. So standing in the courtroom accusing us is Satan, and the whole point of him being there is because of the weakness of our flesh. All of our sins flow out of that weakness that we have in the flesh. Now, Satan's watching you, and he's waiting for your missteps, and he knows that they will come. And even before you make those missteps, he's making slanderous accusations before God. But the advocate knows all about the weakness of the flesh because he's been there. He became flesh and he experienced every temptation that we experience. You know the, you know the Scripture well, "...for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." So the lawyer is not clueless about our deficiencies. He identifies with all of our temptations to sin. He doesn't give us an excuse to sin, but he does know right where we're coming from. He knows our nature. He knows the strength and the deviousness of the adversary. And so Christ doesn't plead our case before the Father this way. Well, Father, it can't be true. They haven't sinned. Well, if he said that, then that would make John... A liar in what he said in First John. He said, if we say we haven't sinned, we've called him a liar. So Jesus says, yes, they have sinned, but I've taken care of it. Now that's comfort that we have because we know that Jesus doesn't say, I told you not to sin, but you did it anyway. Get out of my sight, you are a loathsome, ungrateful ingrate. He'll never say that because he's been down to the lowest point. And he sees how the devil attacks people when they are down at their lowest points. They're weak in the flesh. Now, again, he doesn't offer us an excuse to sin. But what he's done, he's already accounted for that weakness that he knew would be there. And so he also died for that weakness. One day, that aspect of his work is going to be gone. Because when we die, we'll leave the sinful body behind. We'll leave our sinful nature behind. And then we'll have a glorified, incorruptible body made like the Lord Jesus Christ. But until then, he understands the weakness of our flesh. Now finally, I've sinned. Now what? You've been told not to, but you did it. Well, you don't need to panic and fall in despair because of the willingness of the Father. The Father is willing to listen to the Advocate. I think it would be quite easy for us to misconstrue the courtroom scenario and think that we have here the picture of a judge who's cold and cynical and he's very, he's just anxious to find fault and anxious to lower the boom on us. God is not Judge Judy. And I, I said that last week and I told you I was going to explain this week why God is not like Judge Judy. If you watch Judge Judy, how many of you ever watched that? Okay, we're all sinners. Um, <laughs> I think that they still do this. At the beginning of the program, they have Judge Judy standing there uh, dressed up like the Lady of Justice, and she has a blindfold over her eyes, and she sort of raises one corner and peeks out one eye through that blindfold. Well, I think that Judge Judy many times has never, re- never removed the blindfold because if you're in the right and you're on the winning side, she'll treat you like dirt anyway. I mean, she doesn't like either side. She wants to hammer both sides, both the plaintiff and the defendant, and she can't wait until she does. And so with glee, she hands out the punishment to people. You know, sometimes I wonder why these losers ever go on that show to get humiliated by the judge. But that's what she likes. I mean, there's no real winners in that courtroom. But that's not the way that it is in God's courtroom. First of all, I mentioned a moment ago that that he's the one who appointed the advocate. God approved him. Peter said in 1 Peter that he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And when Peter was preaching that great sermon that he preached on Pentecost, he said Christ was approved by God. He was delivered up by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God to be crucified. So God's the one who set up the whole scenario. He predestined all of that to happen. He chose the one who would die, and he chose the ones for whom he would die. So do you think that God's sitting in the courtroom anxious to undo all of that? Is he, does he want to undo the sacrifice of the Son by casting his own people into hell? Well, not for a moment. As soon as Satan accuses, God is most anxious to hear the defense. And we need not think that what Jesus is doing, he's pleading to God the Father to change his mind. And God is so determined to give us our punishment that all the courtroom is in a hush waiting to see if these, if these, uh, these accusations can be defended and, and everybody's sitting on pins and needles wondering if the desperate arguments of Jesus will succeed. That's not the picture we have at all. God sent the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, does that sound like God is anxious to condemn his own people? God is not reluctant to forgive those who have believed And so when Jesus speaks in the courtroom, God is thinking, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And didn't he say that? He told others that, didn't he? So now do you think that God is going to stand in the courtroom and say, this is my beloved son, hear ye him, but I'm not going to listen to him. And thank God we have consolation that God does hear him. He's anxious to hear him. He's more than willing to hear him. To forgive us on the basis of Christ's blood shed in satisfaction for sin. Now, one more important point I think needs to be made with this. John says, Our advocate is with the Father. And so, rather than being an impersonal judge who wants to throw us into the slammer, our judge is our Father. And when we sin, He doesn't stop being our Father. And that's where we're going to end this tonight. We have before us here a courtroom scene. We have the holy and righteous judge who just happens to be our father. We have a relationship with him, and that gives us a side up. Now, it doesn't unduly influence his justice, but it at least ought to make us feel good that we have a relationship with the judge. We have also the righteous advocate, the one in whom there is no guile. There's no deceit in him. There's no deceit in his defense. So what we have here in this courtroom is a perfect setup for God to smile on us. And do you know why? It's because the holy and righteous judge loves nothing better than to see justice satisfied. He has a perfect courtroom scene. There are no shenanigans that go on. There are no loopholes that can be exploited. Perfect justice is always done in his courtroom. You ever get frustrated with our justice system? I mean, don't you hear all the time about lawyers that get disillusioned with the system Judges that have their hands tied because of some wacky procedural thing and just you know, just wasn't carried out properly. Sometimes people think, well, the sentence that the judge gave to, is too long and some say the sentence is too short. And sometimes a judge has to toss out a case that has guilt written all over it because some policeman didn't Mirandize a, 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 a suspect. Sometimes in courtrooms, lawyers deliberately withhold the truth hoping that no one's going to ask. And so, therefore, no one's the wiser. That does not happen in God's courtroom. Perfect justice is served every single time. And the wonderful part of this for you and me is that when we sin, the perfect judge says that we have been pardoned for all the crimes that we have been accused of. John says don't sin. That ruins fellowship with God. But if you do sin... You have an advocate with the Father. And this advocate ever lives to make intercession for you. He cleanses you from all of your sins. He works. He's worthy. He knows all of your weaknesses. And he represents you before his Father and your Father, who's always willing to forgive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, the one who gave his life for us, who pleads our cause. I pray, Lord, that every person here knows Jesus as Savior. And if not, then you would convict some heart today to know there's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray for our people. Help us that we would not sin. Forgive us of our sin. You promised to do that, and, Lord, lead us in the way that we should go. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.